0: From Covenant Shreveport, this is Origins of the Faith. Chapter 8 Apostles to Intellectuals Interacting with Other Worldviews Taylor, this has been one of my favorite chapters thus far. This is one of the most interesting periods in the life of the church to me, and um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting into this with you today. Same. Um, because it, it's so fascinating how um, Greek philosophy uh, starts to infiltrate the church, And and Greek philosophy existed before the church, right? It predates even the time of Jesus. We're talking about kind of the classical Greek philosophers, Plato, Aristotle, people like that. That that predates the time of Jesus. But, But now we're jumping ahead like into the 100s and 200s and 300s. And the teaching of these guys still resonates, and and even to today, I I mean, the teaching of these classical Greek philosophers still resonate um, in culture, in the church, outside of the church. Um, And what Shelley says is this kind of comes under this um, umbrella term of Hellenism, Mm -hmm. um, which is, he calls, the period of Greek culture and thinking from Aristotle until the emergence of the Romans. Um, But man, it has such a significant impact on uh, the world and the early church. And in particular, we're going to look today at a few of these um, uh, presbyters or elders um, or even bishops in some cases in the early church who want to try to integrate the teaching of Greek philosophers with the teaching of Christ. Um, and at some points that gets real murky and dubious. Um, At other points, it really seems to have sort of an evangelistic um, goal in that they are trying to, as Paul said, become all things to all people in a way so that we might win them. Yeah. And so um, why don't you kick us off in this chapter and give us some initial takeaways for you? Sure. So I, I also
1: love this chapter, and I took a couple philosophy classes, In uh, college, so I was I was glad to see that it was only it only seemed to be one person I think in the chapter that would that would condemn me for it, and that was Tertullian. (laughs) But other other than uh other than him, I I seemed to be on safe ground. So the way that Shelley breaks down this chapter, he outlines it with kind of a why would we do this? Why would we mix philosophy? with Christianity, isn't, aren't these two things completely opposed to each other? And slowly, uh, by, by using history as well as just kind of the natural flow that the different individuals took in starting these schools and handing off these schools of thought, these mm-hmm. Christian schools of philosophical thought, he leads you to the point of going, okay, it makes total sense that you would use a scholarly for the time a scholarly approach to something like christian doctrine and he he shows how these these folks that were attending these philosophical schools were above all else they were they were seeking truth mm-hmm. and so when you've got highly educated thinkers christian thinkers who are able to take someone who's seeking truth and use their own language and wording and the nomenclature that they're familiar with and turn them to scripture, it works fantastically for for the bright minds.
0: The underlying question here seems to be, though, what does it mean for Christians to be in the world but not of the world? Yeah, that's right. And Christians had already dealt with the heresy of Gnosticism, which was a platonic heresy, like like the, the basic teaching of Gnosticism, which is that the material world is bad and the spiritual world is good, that comes pretty much directly out of the teaching of Plato. And so, in the minds of many Christians, this is an amalgam of Hellenistic philosophy with the pseudo-Christian religious elements, and it's not a good thing. So, why would it be a good thing for us to incorporate more of this into the teaching of the Church? And, and you have some Christians – I mean, I guess you kind of have two groups. You have you have one group that would say, uh, no, this is what it looks like to do the work of ministry. That to be in the world means that we need to um, speak the same language as the people that we are sent to. We need to have a knowledge of how they live and how they think. And much like Paul did in Athens – that's right. In the book of Acts, we need to, um, in a very strategic way, take what they know and what their experience of life is, and weave the gospel into it. Um, Paul, in the book of Acts, is in Athens, and you know, like very famously, he um, says to all of the learned men of Athens, you know, you have all of these gods here in the city. Like, I see statues and monuments to them, and. You're so like worried that you're gonna miss some god you don't know about. You have statues even to unknown gods, just right. you know, just as a grab bag, catch all. Uh, you know, hopefully that ticks all the boxes. Um, we don't make any of these guys angry, um, but Paul says, "Let me tell you who that unknown god is, and it is Jesus Christ." And so he's using their own structure, their own philosophy, as it were, their own religious structure to say. Let me tell you who this God is you don't know. And then he weaves the gospel into it. So you've got this group that says that's what we're doing when we take Hellenistic philosophy and partner it with apostolic teaching. Yeah, You have another group that would say, no, 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 to be in the world and not of the world means to basically remove ourselves from the world. We are, we are here physically, but we are not necessarily here like mentally or spiritually, um so that would largely be characteristic of monasticism right like this this pulling away from the world, pulling away from the marketplace or the forum or, you know, any place where there would be like public discourse, and we're going to go to the wilderness, and we're going to set up shop in the wilderness, and we're going to be a community of Christ in the world physically, mm-hmm. as it were, but, but not engaged in any of this foolishness that we're right. talking about. So those are kind of the two groups we see, and um, that is a big part of the underlying question here. Um, you mentioned Tertullian. Tertullian is one of the first to pop up in, um, in in being an opponent, right, of some of this stuff. And Tertullian is a, a controversial figure in some ways. Uh, Shelley quotes him on page ninety-one: "What do Athens and Jerusalem have in common? Away with all attempts to produce a modelled Christianity of Stoic, Platonic." and dialectic composition we have no need of curiosity reaching beyond Christ Jesus when we believe we need nothing further than to believe search that you may believe then stop he right. says
1: yeah <laughs> and and tertullian as shelley goes on to say is not he's not scared of this for no reason because this is what a lot of some of the heresies and some of the heretics that we've mentioned in previous chapters have come out of these philosophical schools of thought and have essentially boiled down the message of Christianity or the, the their version of the gospel um, to a, a, absolutely a gateway of new thinking and mm-hmm. wrong thinking. So, departing from orthodoxy comes with this total mixture of Christian thinking and philosophical thinking, with 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 no boundaries, mm-hmm. with no like underlying. Basis of truth, mm-hmm. and so he's he's right to be afraid to an extent because he's seen the damage that this can do. Mm-hmm. But then there are other folks who who, like we mentioned, say no. This is this is not a total boiling down. This is actually just being inclusive of the way that the culture represents itself and higher levels of thinking right now.
0: You know what's interesting in this chapter to me is there are several guys that Shelley uh, identifies. One is Tertullian. Uh, one is Clement of Alexandria, another is Origen um, of Alexandria. And and these guys land on kind of different sides of the coin with relationship to this issue. But all of them uh, have been viewed historically by the church as being a bit questionable. Hmm. So, Tertullian – is somebody who, as we, and we talked a bit about this a bit in our previous episode, but Tertullian's a guy who really feels like the church has gotten away from its original ethos, that it has become um, less reliant on the Holy Spirit, it has become more immoral. Um, and with the rise of bishops, like we talked about in the last episode, and bishops just being able to forgive sin, and you know, it's kind of like, man, if I can just sin and then just go to my bishop or my priest and be forgiven of my sin, then I don't feel this pressure to really behave in a way that's reflective of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, Tertullian is like, man, we got to get back to the way things were. Um, however, uh, later in life, Tertullian falls into what is viewed by the church as heresy because he becomes a montanist. Um, and we talked about monetus um, in uh, an episode, several episodes ago, but he was a guy who also felt like the church needed to return to some of its roots. And yet he claimed to basically have, uh, the gift of prophecy. Yeah, this new divine revelation. Yes, and he had uh, these two women with him as well, who were prophetesses, and he's going around declaring all of this new revelation, all of this new prophecy, and um, and and the church viewed what he was doing as being heretical in nature. Well, Tertullian becomes a follower of his, hmm. um, in in a time after his writing of this, and so it's like in his pursuit. Of not being, um, you know, in the world and of the world, he potentially inadvertently falls into a heretical way of thinking. Fascinating, yeah. So, so he he is an important figure here and and an important figure for the early church um, because he did write extensively and um, was a big opponent, particularly of Gnosticism, and and wrote extensively against Gnosticism and some other heresies as well. Um, and, and sometimes you'll hear him called things like the father of Latin theology because he wrote in Latin and he just wrote so much. Um, but the church even today in the Roman Catholic Church, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, they they don't necessarily view him as a saint hmm. um, or think of him necessarily as an early church father.
1: And the same with Clement and Origen.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. Um, and Clement and Origen would have been on the other side of the coin here, right? They, they – uh, Clement is a part of this. Well, both are, but but Clement takes over this school, um, this catechetical school in Alexandria, which is a, a place where they are trying to blend um, different Hellenistic philosophies with Christianity, and I, I I think in 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 a really like genuine way to try to win people who are coming out of Hellenistic culture. Um, to the way of Christ, and they're presenting it as, as kind of, hey, this is the way of true wisdom. Um, and you know, so so Clement, and and I think we should mention this is a different Clement than maybe we've talked about before. This is Clement of Alexandria, and he is he's living from one fifty to two fifteen. This is not Clement the first, who was uh, one of the Apostolic Fathers. So Clement the first. Was a bishop of Rome in the latter part of the first century, I think like 80, 90 um, AD, Clement I, who wrote the book of 1st Clement, which is considered among the writings of the Apostolic Fathers, that first generation after the Apostles. Um, that's, that's one Clement. This is a different one. This is Clement of Alexandria. Okay. So just so there's no confusion there. Um, And he takes over the school in Alexandria where he is teaching and then his student is um, this other guy named Origen. And Origen comes in, I think, at a very early age, like maybe takes over the school when he's 18. 18, Yeah, And, um, you know, the big problem that Origen seems to have is a couple things. One, he he has a tendency towards universalism. Mm -hmm. So he is quoted on a few occasions with kind of openly speculating that, hey, m- maybe everybody's ultimately going to be saved. Maybe no matter what you've done in this world, maybe there's going to be a time after death when maybe you get to make a decision for Jesus. And I think to some extent, he even goes so far as to say, hey, maybe even the devil himself you know, right. will get the ability to do this. And it's purely speculative. He's not basing that on any scripture. And this gets him into a ton of trouble. Yeah. And um, Shelley
1: mentions it's not it's not so much the speculation, but the fact that Origen turns this into doctrine yeah, for he, himself he, and for his school. He kind
0: of speaks as it as if it is right. the case. Um and, and and my understanding is he he just kind of had a tendency to do that with a lot of things that were speculative. Um and some he would codify a bit more than others. Um, I think another issue with him, and I can't remember if Shelley talks about this, but I'm pretty sure. Or, Origen also had this um, perspective that that all human souls preexisted the creation of the earth; hmm. that all human souls had been created by God at some other time, and then then were like brought into human bodies once the earth was created um so you know just kind of weird out there things that might be interesting to just like think about or you know bat around as hey what if that was the case but but things that in no way could we ever with any authority say no that is what is yeah right and certainly that the scripture never says anything about um so yeah this gets him into some trouble as well
1: yeah there's, there's one thing that's mentioned here. Actually, it's a quote that was mentioned in the last chapter, in chapter 7, by um, Athanagoras. Mm-hmm. He says, Among us are uneducated folk, artisans and old women, who are utterly unable to describe the value of our doctrines and words, but who attest them by their deeds. Mm-hmm. So, so there are absolutely people who are just not as drawn to maybe the intellectual side of theology, but, of course, as we're seeing in this chapter, there are plenty of people who are. And Shelley seems to use the question of, like, why, why are we doing this to, to combat heresy? Mm-hmm. It, so while these folks have their own questionable sides, which, you know, okay, surprise, they weren't perfect. Mm-hmm. While they have their questionable sides, it, it is something to say that there were people thinking deeply about Christianity... And we're able to do that by using the philosophy of the day, right?
0: Well, yeah, and and I think Clement is an example of somebody who seemed to do that fairly well. Um, Page 93 of this chapter, he talks about – he says, if, for example, Clement discussed the universe and its meaning, uh, which is the field of cosmology – so loved by the Gnostics, I mean, that was their wheelhouse, was the universe, the spiritual realm, the heavens. Um, he didn't do it with the intention of proving these ideas wrong offhandedly and then discarding them quickly, but instead he pointed out how the fundamental religious question uh, or questions about the creation of the world, the existence of evil in this life, and the salvation through the word Jesus Christ found their last and deepest answer in Christian revelation. He wanted to be an apostle to the Hellenistic intellectual world. His purpose was not purely or even primarily theological, but pastoral. His greater purpose was to win not arguments, but people to Christ and lead them to salvation.
1: Yeah, so Clement then is, is using Scripture against the Gnostics in a mm-hmm. way that that maybe they weren't prepared for. By, it's, it's very inclusive. Yeah, right? by using a more biblical theology, what we would call a biblical theology, whereas the Gnostics may have been approaching him... Proof texting their yeah. points.
0: It's not polemics, right? Like he's not he's not trying to um, beat them down, right? Instead, he is trying to engage in um, an intellectual exchange with them. He's he's trying to en- engage in a debate with them, not so as to defeat them but as to win them mm-hmm. and by by appealing to some of their own way of thinking or some of their own language again much like paul did in athens like he's he's using he's using that tact mm-hmm. now now here's the, here's the question that pops up in all of this is like where like is there such a thing as a, a sacred realm and a secular realm and and if there is a sacred realm and a secular realm, wh- wh- where's the division between those two things? And what should christians do with this the quote unquote secular realm right how like how should we respond to that because even in our world today you have christians who would say anything that is could be deemed secular in nature is something to be avoided mm-hmm. all the way around and then you would have other christians who would say no 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 we need to use the quote unquote secular world to our advantage to do exactly what clement is trying to do here to try to win people um, and and what I would throw out is, is the notion that, uh, first of all, God is omnipresent, and God is in all and through all. And so, even though in our world we see things that are explicitly um, God-focused or Christ-centered or uh, inherently spiritual in nature. We also find all of these other things that are not that. Um, the thing that immediately comes to mind for me is the arts: uh, music, painting, um, you know, anything else you could think of as the arts. Um, for whatever reason, and this this may be controversial, for whatever reason, a lot of the best art there that, that's out there in today's world is not necessarily "quote unquote" Christian art, right? Right. Um, and and so a question is what do we do with that, right? And and is it pot, is it something that we should avoid completely, right? Should we not listen to music that's been made by somebody who is not a follower of Jesus? Or should we not listen to music that is not inherently about the gospel or about Jesus? Um, or should we try to take this more pragmatic ap- approach and say, yes, but go- Like God, because he is in all and through all, God is not removed from artwork that has been created by somebody who is not even aware of his existence. Like that, that God at his core is the author of all beauty. Mm -hmm. And so, anywhere we find beauty, to some extent, we find God. Like to me, that seems like a very similar approach to what Clement was trying to do. With the Gnostics and yeah. others,
1: yeah, I, I see that as a perfect example. You've got folks like Tertullian who would say, the, "There's a divide there, and we have no business mm-hmm. intermingling with these mm-hmm. these folks that are going to." You know, I guess the, we have no business in philosophy as Christians, right? And you have folks like Clement who are able, Clement and Origin, who are able to see the nuance, enter that space. And use the beauty in that higher thinking. They're, they end up being called the first Christian scholars, mm. and I don't know if that's necessarily the case. We've seen plenty of scholarly types before them, but mm-hmm. in any in any case, they end up getting that title, and it's because they're taking that step, entering the philosophical world, and bringing Christianity to it, or or in some cases, unearthing the truth of Christianity behind some of this thinking.
0: What we've said in the past was for, for the very early, you know, church it, there in the end of the first century, into the second century, I mean, the persecution was such a thing at that point that there's just not a lot of in-depth theological writing. Right. Most of the writing that's out there is responding to heret- heretical teachings in the church. Um, it's not until we get to this point here in the 200s where there's there a short period of peace that I think Clement enjoys. So he's sort of freed up to devote himself to this larger scope um, mode of teaching and writing that is taking into consideration all of these different philosophies and trying to integrate them with the gospel. Um, Origen gets some of that, but later in life, Uh, persecution kicks up again in the Roman Empire and origin I think by all accounts winds up you know being tortured near the end of his life and then because he is tortured for so long he ultimately winds up dying as a result of his injuries and so there's a little period of peace here where you're able to see some of this like Christian scholarship flourish and then it gets squashed down again by persecution only to, um, and I think we'll talk about this in our next episode, only to kind of bubble back up to the surface once um, Christianity becomes legalized in the Roman Empire.
1: Yeah, that is a fascinating look because we started this class by looking at, um, I think one of the first chapters was Christianity being for only the worthless people was the the tagline of the chapter, and it was folks saying – it was the roman officials at the time saying look all these all these worthless people are becoming christians that's what this religion is for it's hope it's hope for slaves and women and children and lower class citizens mm. and we've gone from that from that view of christianity to christian scholars who were able to show that speaking truth to anyone was possible and speaking and thinking critically was possible so we've brought this religion from worthless people up to the intellectuals mm-hmm. in yeah. a very short span of time.
0: Yeah, very quickly. And um, yeah, and and at the end of this, you're going to get plunged back into one of the worst persecutions that Christians have faced under the Roman emperor Diocletian. Um, here at the end of the 200s, Diocletian, who I think for much of his time did not persecute Christians, like near the end of his reign, he very- like cranks the dial to 11 and just, I mean, just people are being killed left and right. Um, So it's, it's a period known uh, often as the great persecution um, because even though there had been persecution before, man, it, it just gets notched up um, near the end of the 200s. And so how about we stop here for today in our next episode, we're going to move into the next section of this book which um, looks at how Christianity transforms and develops as it becomes not just something on the fringes and not just a source of persecution, but it becomes literally the dominant center of the Roman empire. I mean, it is one of the craziest stories to me in human history of the way that Christianity goes from um, being this sect within Judaism to gaining power in the roman empire just in, by sheer number like there are just so many people who are christians and even when they're being killed left and right there's just still just so many of them and eventually coming to this point where it becomes the central religion of rome doing away with roman paganism which had been in place for centuries right i mean it, it's just unbelievable and depending on your view It's either the greatest thing to happen to Christianity (laughs) or the absolute worst thing to ever happen to Christianity. So let's get into that in our next episode, and we will see you guys then.